0: Father God, we thank you this afternoon as we come together as your church, Lord, that we can remind ourselves, we can know because of what you have done in Christ that you are our rock and our redeemer, that we have a firm foundation in you and that when the trials of this world rise and when we are tempted to be choked and and just taken down and, and, and beaten up by these things, Lord, you remind us that because of our relationship with you in Jesus. We can gather, we can praise, we can turn our eyes to you and we can be given newness in our life to persevere, to walk by faith for your glory. So as we come to your word, Lord, we ask for your grace to be poured out upon us that your spirit would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to understand and receive your word with a proper attitude of humility and thanksgiving and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If you haven't met me before or haven't gotten a chance to say hi, I'd love to get that chance to catch up with you and, and maybe greet you and um, have that personal connection. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 23. First Samuel 23. We are going through this study through the book of 1 Samuel. We're trying to uh, go through every chapter, and we are doing it in pretty quick order. But we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. As you turn your way there, I'm going to, by way of introduction, kind of talk about this past year. And uh, one of the interesting things that's happened as a pastor is that over the past 18 months or so, because of COVID, um, I've had multiple opportunities presented to me to speak to groups virtually. So they've asked me to record a sermon. And I don't really necessarily like doing this because it's kind of weird when you're not in person with them. But they asked me to record a sermon and and send it to them. So I've spoken for a few virtual events um, at different parts of the country. And there's only one caveat, one requirement that I give to these churches that ask me if they can get a, a video sermon. And what I tell them is, as long as you promise to turn off the comments. I don't want to read the comments on my own videos one day in the future. As you guys know, if you know anything about the internet, one of the primary rules for your mental health well-being is do not read the comments. But sometimes you do, and sometimes there's some interesting things in the comments, even things that can be kind of beneficial and let you know about the human condition. This happened to me once um, a few years back um, I hadn't learned my lesson well enough, I guess, not to read the comments. I was scrolling down in this video about kind of the universe. It was, I think it was like Cosmos. You know what I'm talking about? It was one of those videos about kind of space and time and whatever. I was, I was watching it, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I scrolled down, and the first comment, number one comment on YouTube was, I don't know how anyone could watch this video and not believe in God. I was like, yeah, amen, amen. How could you not believe in a creator? And then the number two comment was, I don't know how anyone could watch this video and believe that God cares about your life. Because he's so big. Because he has so many things that he is over. How could you believe in a God who cares? And that's kind of the question we're going to answer today. Does God really care? And you know, when I first became a Christian, This question couldn't have been further from my mind. Of course God cares, right? Of course he does. I I I learned about how he created me, how he sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, how I was lost, and he brought this message to me. I I learned that God had all these plans in store for me. I could see how he had forgiven me and set me free and redeemed me. It was so clear, like night night and day, of course God cares about me. But then as life went on, as human things happened. Disappointments, failures, trials, fears, and then maybe unexpectedly, but surely the question started to pop up at various times and in various ways. Does God actually care? Does God really care about your life? And if he does, how do you know? How do you see it? I wonder how many of you this afternoon may have asked that question, or maybe are even asking that question today. Now, it doesn't mean you have to have suffered greatly, though some people do. But I imagine that however much you have suffered in life, whatever trials you've gone through, they may have caused you to question whether God cares about you. Maybe that's a long, unwanted struggle with singleness, loneliness, Maybe it's the painful wandering of your children who you try to raise in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but they've gone away from him. Maybe the loss of an opportunity or the discovery of a betrayal or some sort of lifelong burden or even just coming face to face recently maybe with death. I think as human beings, even as Christians, we need to understand that the difficulties of life often cause us to wonder. About God's care. This afternoon, as we return to the book of 1 Samuel, this is the question that we are going to hopefully begin to answer together from God's word. 1 Samuel 23, we've come far in this book. And just for those of you who haven't been with us this whole time, the book of Samuel is a book that tells about kind of the early stages of the nation of Israel. There is this woman, Hannah, who prays for her son, and her son, who is given to her in response to that prayer, is Samuel, who becomes this great prophet. He leads the nation through a kind of this revival, and then near the end of his life, Saul becomes the first king. But Saul is a terrible king, and so we go through his quick story, and God chooses a new king in his place. And that king is David. David, who will be the kind of king that God actually Desires. And there's all these stories, they each bring a unique flavor to the table. But today we find ourselves in a chapter that's interesting in the book of Samuel because this chapter doesn't actually move the story forward. Okay, what do I mean by that? If you read this chapter, 1 Samuel 23, what happens in the beginning of the chapter is the same thing as the end. Like nothing happens. If there were a Sparknotes version of the Bible, this is the chapter they would cut out because there's nothing there supposedly about what's going on. And we find ourselves zeroing in on david's life in a time when he's in the wilderness and what the author wants us to see i believe is god's care for david even in his trial david started off well you remember the story even if you haven't been in church you know the story david killed uh goliath right he's a a giant slayer he was anointed by god he becomes someone who defeats tens of thousands of enemies but in first samuel 23 david is running away He's no longer the golden boy. He doesn't have the Midas touch. He's running away from the king who wants to kill him. He's in the wilderness, literally and figuratively, and that's where we arrive in the story. If we were him, I think we'd be legitimately wondering whether God still cared about us. And what we see in this chapter through the Holy Spirit is that if we understand the story of David, we can experience God's care in our lives just as he did when we find ourselves needing it most. So let's get into the story, uh, get into the Bible. 1 Samuel 23, from our passage this afternoon, the first way that we experience God's care is when we seek after God's plan. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. <clears throat> and David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kalah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and Kalah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kalah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go harm, um, to go down to Kalah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then... Said David, O Lord, O God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, we need to understand the context of these verses. These verses, they they teach us in this first half of the chapter about God's care when we seek after God's plan. But there's a lot of stuff here that you and I don't get because we live in 2021 Texas. So we need to understand the context at least a little bit to understand the facts of this story. You know, um, I'm pretty bad at geography. And I assume that most of you are too. Have you ever taken one of those tests online where they're like, name all the states without um, knowing in advance what they are? And you try and you're like, I only knew 12 states or less. You might only know Texas, California, Florida, Alaska, obviously, something like that. Well, It's even harder when you think about Bible geography. So we need to understand what's going on in the story because there's all these moving parts. They're they're going around, and it doesn't make any sense to us unless we have at least a big picture of what's happening. So the nation of Israel, if you didn't know, it's kind of on the side of the Mediterranean Sea. It's in the Middle East. And at that time, it was kind of a small nation. And it didn't extend all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. In fact, it was only kind of in the middle section between those two places. Now, on the west side of Israel was the Philistines. Okay, so they didn't, they didn't have beaches in Israel at that time. You had to go through Philistine territory to get to the sea. And on the east side of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River, was the country of Moab. So they're kind of sandwiched in between these two nations. And David and his men in this story are in the wilderness of Judah. They're in the southern central part of Israel, in a desert region, they're not living in towns, they're not living in cities, they're in the wilderness, kind of going in circles, avoiding capture by Saul. But the town of Keilah, which comes up in this story in verse 1, where David hears about this problem that they're having, it's on the far western edge of the country. So you guys understand what's happening? They're, they're not over there, but they hear about what's happening in this town, but that's all the way on the edge of Philistine territory. It's all the way in a part of town you don't want to be. And so you might think of it in this way. The Philistines are coming in to Israel and they're attacking and they're raiding this city because it's right on the border. And what do they do? They're not just there to like murder the people, okay? What they do is they come in and they require them to give from their threshing floors. To give some of the grain that they're growing, to give a tribute of their resources to the Philistines so that they'll leave them alone. And when you read about this, I think about one of those movies uh, where there's like a gangster who's co- like in charge of a neighborhood and he goes store to store and he's like, give me like half of your profits or I'm going to beat you up or vandalize your store or something like that. That's basically what the Philistines are doing. They're exerting their power over the people of Kela. They're oppressing them. And somehow in God's wisdom, that story of what's happening gets all the way to David and his men. The reason for this is because David kind of is like the ancient Israelite Robin Hood. Right? Him and his merry men, they help people out. And so he hears about this story and he inquires of God. And this sets off a chain of events that show us God's care for David. First, David finds out from God, should I go and try to help these people? It's kind of a long trek. It's going to be a hard time. Should I go and do it? God says, yes. And so they go down. They defeat the Philistines. Saul hears that they're in Keilah. Now here's the other geographic lesson. The place where Saul lives, Benjamin is much closer to the city of Keilah than Judah. So for them to go to the city, they're not only going near the Philistines, they're also going between Saul and their enemies. They're going between a rock and a hard place. Saul finds out that David is in Keilah, just a short drive from his hometown, and he heads out with his army to besiege the city. Now When you think about besieging a city, uh, most of you, if you're like me, are thinking about like Helm's Deep, right? Lord of the Rings, it's going to be this long, drawn-out battle. That's not what's happening. In ancient Israel, at this time in their history, when it says that someone besieges a city, all they do is they come up and they light it on fire. So it's a bad time that Saul has in store for David. He's unhinged, he's murderous. But God, in this story, reveals to David that it's going to happen. David gets out of town just in time leading to the frustration of F- Saul and his men. He gets away from Calah. He goes all the way back to Judah. And that's the end of this first part of the story. Now, what's the point? What's the point in this history lesson? Well, a few years back, the Philadelphia 76ers made famous a phrase that became like, popular in all different areas of popular culture. And you guys probably know it. The phrase is, trust. The process. And here's what the phrase meant for them. No matter how many games they were going to lose, they had this big plan that they were going to draft all these good players and eventually they would become an elite team in the NBA. No matter how bad things looked in the season, no matter how bad their point differential, trust the process, there was a big plan that they could get behind. And this story in David's life, where he just goes to Kayla, he saves it, he gets out of town just in time, is meant to encourage us that the way that we begin to experience God's care in our lives is by seeking after God's plan. By seeking after God's plan. And yet, it's not that simple, right? I imagine that if you're in a hard time right now, and I as the pastor come up to you and I say, all you got to do is trust the process. You're probably going to roll your eyes at me. Like, What are you talking about? It's not enough to just believe that God has a plan. And the author of 1 Samuel, he knows that. See, what matters here when it comes to experiencing God's care is not just that you know or think God has a plan. Is that like David, you actually seek out his plan, not just your own. See, if you read this story carefully, you need to notice that David is not the only one who's thinking about God's plan. Okay? There's another character here, another man who... who knows in his head that God has a plan, but he is utterly wrong in his approach to it. Look at verse 7. The man is Saul. 1 Samuel 23, 7, Saul. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. See, it turns out in life that it's not only the good guys who think they're following God's plan. Saul, the evil, murderous king, he thinks this too. He says, God has given David into my hand. See, Kalah was right by Benjamin. It was convenient, it was a place where he could catch David unexpectedly. It sits so well, it fits in so well with what Saul has been wanting to do all this time. And the reason this story talks about what Saul is thinking is that it's meant to be ironic that Saul thinks this must be God. Both David and Saul are thinking about God, but Saul is doing it in completely the wrong way. And 1 Samuel puts these two stories together into one narrative to force us to question ourselves about whether we are actually looking for God's plan or our own. It's not just that they believed God had a plan. You see, the difference between David, who experiences God's care, and Saul, who is disobedient to the Lord, is that David seeks, he inquires, he searches for God's plan as opposed to his own. For David, it wasn't just about what was easy. Look at verse 2. David inquires of the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. He asks God, should I go and attack the Philistines at Kalah?" And when the Lord says yes, if you look at verse 3, we find out that that answer isn't exactly what he and his men wanted. Because they know that Calah is a dangerous place. That it's close to Saul. That it's where the Philistines are strong. It's an inconvenient answer to their search for God's plan. And yet when David inquires again, he's obedient, he does what the Lord says. Now, think about this for a moment. In your situation where you wonder, does God really care? Are you more like Saul or are you more like David? Because I think for so many so-called Christians in this world, for so Many of us, it's easy for us to say God has a plan, to give lip service to that. But we really want God's plan to look just like our own. You know, maybe you've heard the four spiritual laws. You know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Maybe you've watched Touched by an Angel. You know this thing. And yet, do you actually want his plan? See, that's the challenge of this Story. We need to see from this passage that we experience God's care only when we seek after the Lord's plan in our trials and in our distress. I think for so many of us, we're kind of like this proverbial guy who goes on a hike and he falls down a hill and eventually rolls off a cliff and he grabs onto a branch. And the story goes that as he's grabbing onto that branch and he's looking up at the cliff, he calls out, is anyone up there who can help me? And there's no people around, but he hears the voice of God. And he says, God, is that you? And God says, yeah, I'll help you. And he says, "Uh, I'll do anything you want, God. As long as you save me from this fall, I'll do anything you want. And God says, that sounds good. What I want you to do is to let go of the branch. And the man says, is anyone else up there? That's the way that so many of us are when it comes to God's plan. Especially... When it's hard. Especially when times in our life are tough. We don't want to find out what God is doing in this. We want God to find out what I want him to do. It's a joke, obviously, that story of the man. But I think so often we are exactly like him. And that's why when our own plans fall apart, we cry out hurt or depressed or even angry at God. Not just saying, does God really care? But God, do you you hate me? What God wants us to see is that he does care. But we experience that care by seeking out his plan. I'm reminded of George Mueller, who was a man who cared for hundreds or thousands of orphans during his ministry in England. And he was a person who was known, not necessarily for his great acts of of love and service, but for his prayer life. That for every need he had, he turned first to the Lord in prayer. Not as a last response, but as a first response to seek after the will of God and to live within it. David is like that. And in this story, this is what we need to see. He inquires of the Lord. In verse 23, he inquires of the Lord again. In verse 10, David inquires of the Lord, calling himself the servant of God. What's the point in all this? He's saying, God, I want to know your will. I want to know your plan. For what? Not just for my head knowledge, so that I can actually do it. Lord, tell your servant what you are doing so that your servant can serve you. He knew God had a plan, but he also wanted to find out for himself what it was so that he could be part of it. Now, before we go any further, we believe in expository preaching, which means explaining the text. And I know you have a lot of questions about this text, so we're going to try to answer them. We need to explain how David sought the Lord. It's possible that he just prayed, okay? But it seems in this passage that there's more than that just going on. With the explanations of Abiathar and the ephod, uh, it seems like David actually sought out the Lord's guidance through these particular means. So what were they? Well, first, in the beginning of this chapter, when David first inquires of the Lord when they're in Judah about whether they should go help the people in Keilah, I believe that what happened was that David inquired of God through the prophet Gad. Okay, now this isn't in this chapter, but you'll find out if you just go back one chapter in the Bible that David, among his 600 or so men, one of them is a prophet. His name is Gad, like I said. And Gad is the guy who told David to come back to Judah from God after they had gone to Moab to kind of put David's family in safety. So Gad is this guy. He's a prophet. Now, in those days, there were prophets. And we know this because they keep popping up in the book of Samuel, right? You're reading, and all of a sudden, there's prophets here, prophets there. Saul is prophesying. Prophets were just part of the culture. We need to understand, prophets didn't always speak for God, It's not like they just had like a a, a walkie-talkie where they just call on God whenever they want and he's bound to answer them. But God did use prophets in those days. As the author of Hebrews says, that many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers through prophets. So first, David inquired and received a response to God from God through a prophet. But secondly, it seems that David sought out God's plan through the use of an ephod. Look at verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Kelah, He had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, (coughs) what is an ephod? Okay, um, this is a hard question. Uh, You probably have a lot of questions about this at this point. I'm going to do my best to answer them. But if you have more, uh, I want to say feel free to ask me or email me your questions. Don't text me them, but you can email me. Um, But let's talk about ephods. Maybe you've heard the word if you read the Old Testament. Um, What was an ephod? Well, there's not a lot of explanation given, um, but here's the basic rundown for us. When God gave Moses the design for the tabernacle, he also told him the clothing that the priests were going to wear. And one part of the high priest's clothing was an ephod. Now, again, no definition. So we don't know exactly what it was, but it probably was like a breastplate of some sort. Something that was worn on the the priest's garments. um, And it seems like it could hold something in it. So people think that it was either a breastplate uh, with a pouch or something like that. And the ephod was associated with these two stones that were called the Urim and the Thummim. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, just go back and read uh, like Exodus and Leviticus. But in various parts of scripture, what we see is that these two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, they were used by God at certain times to reveal his will to the people. Okay, and how did this work? The Bible doesn't say exactly. We don't know exactly. So it's probably not important for us to know exactly. All we know is that these two stones could be used by the proper person, the high priest or a priest of, of some sort. And if they were doing it right, God would answer sometimes the questions that were posed to him. Now, no one knows what they look like. Some people think they were kind of like um, stones you look through or something. Other people think that one stone stood for yes, and another stone stood for no. Or maybe the stones had yes and no on both sides and you kind of cast them out. And if they show up, yes, like the same over and over again, that's kind of a confirmation of God's will. We don't know exactly how it works. It's not super important, but that's basically what was going on. There was a way that they had, that we don't know anymore exactly how it worked, but there was a way they had to inquire of God through this proper means. Now, again, we have to understand, it wasn't just any fool who could use this. Okay? You can just like, steal the ephod, cast the stones, and all of a sudden you have all the answers like, uh, who's going to be president in 20 years or something like that. No, you had to be a priest. You had to come to the Lord on his terms. You also needed some sort of confirmation. Like I said, maybe the same answer kept occurring or something like that, but it worked. Now, this is a small but jam-packed can of worms, okay? I know. Um, But here's the main thing. It wasn't idolatry, okay? It wasn't forbidden. It wasn't like they were going outside of God's ordained means of finding out his will. These things, prophets and ephods in the Old Testament, were means that God had given for his leaders in particular to seek out his will when they needed to for the good of his people. Okay? It was something that God had given them. It wasn't something they just made up. They didn't just go out and grab some stones from the river and, and throw them in a circle. Okay? It was something God had given. Saul, he just assumes the will of God, aligns with what he wants, even when he's being disobedient, even though he's actively fighting against what God told him would happen through Samuel. But David experiences God's care in this story when he uses the means God has given to inquire, to seek out, to search for the plan of God so that he might obey it. Now, we don't have prophets like they used to. We don't have an ephod. It's all gone. We don't have priests anymore to use it, even if we had it. But as Christians, I think you guys know where this is going. Especially as a Christian who is in a season of struggle, where you wonder if God really cares, we have something even better. In 2 Peter 1.19, Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says that we have the scriptures. It's better than an ephod. It's better than having prophets running around who we have to test each one of them to find out whether or not he's going to prophesy wrongly so we can either kill him or believe him. We have the scriptures which are perfect and inerrant and tell us the will of God and the plan of God. More fully confirmed than the Urim and the Thummim. More comprehensive than any one prophet. If we're going to be like David in our trials to seek after God's plan, we need to remember that we seek for that in the Bible. There was an old saying that Christians used to use that kind of fell out of favor. I don't know why, but, but I don't hear people saying it so much anymore. People used to say that when Christians were, were struggling in some way, they would search out the word. They would search the scriptures. They would go deep and, and wide and read through the written word of God to find out what God is doing. In answer to the question, does God really care, we need to remember that we experience his care by seeking after his plan in his word. Inquire of the Lord, especially when you are suffering and you wonder how and if he cares. But remember that when you do it, what you're going to discover in the word is his plan, not yours. What does that mean? Well, his plan to sanctify you. 1 Thessalonians 4. His plan to use suffering so that you might receive comfort and then comfort other people who suffer in the same way. That's 2 Corinthians 1. You're going to find out in his word that God's plan is to restore and strengthen and establish you for eternity's sake in 1 Peter 5. You're going to find out that his plan is sometimes, often, normally different than the plan that you had in mind. At the end of the situation with Kayla, David and his men are saved precisely because they look for God's plan and then they follow it. They go somewhere unwise, but they win. They go where it seems dangerous, but they're kept safe. They escape the trap and the betrayal. And they get back to the wilderness, having learned a valuable lesson about God's plan. That's why verse 14 says, if you look at it again, Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God is the one who did not give him up to Saul. It's often been said that the safest place. That anyone can be is safely in the will of God. So when you wonder if God cares, seek his plan in his word. This leads us to the next part of the story, the next part of the chapter, where we see next that we experience God's care when we fellowship with God's people. Let's look at verse 15 and on. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah this next part of the story provides us with a new contrast. Not between David and Saul, but between um, Jonathan and the Ziphites. Jonathan, the son of Saul on the one hand, David's enemy, and the Ziphites, who were David's countrymen, but who betray him on the other. Now, when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading these stories in the Bible, um, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over the emotional undertones of what's going on. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, a few years ago, I heard a Christian counselor talking about the life of Joseph, the story of Joseph's life and, and what happened to him. And, and as he was talking about it, he was talking about it in terms of um, kind of dealing with abuse as a church and, and recognizing the reality of that. And I, I realized when he was telling the story that I had never really thought about what was going on emotionally in the life of this man. So if you just think about the story of Joseph, just for a few moments by way of illustration, um, in Genesis 37, Joseph goes to check on his brothers, and he's the favorite son. His brothers are all older than him, the ones he checks on, and, and they hate him. But he doesn't know how much they hate him, and so when he arrives, they beat him up. They plan to murder him. They have to be convinced by one of the brothers not to do it. Instead, they throw him naked in a pit, in a well, where he can't get out. And, and, and the counselor was telling us, can you imagine this situation in real life? Because you just read it. You heard the story when you were like a kid in Sunday school. You just go through it. But if you imagine the story in real life, you understand that there are emotional things going on that go far beyond just what the text explicitly says. Because this young man, 13 or 14 years old, is in a well. He doesn't know what his brothers have planned for him. His own flesh and blood. He's crying out to them. He's crying from the bottom of the well. Save me. Have mercy. And they ignore him and eat their lunch. And in his fear and terror, the next thing he sees is being pulled out of the well to be sold as a slave to strangers. And you think, well, the text doesn't exactly say all that. It doesn't say exactly what he was feeling. No, it doesn't. But 20 or so years later, decades later, when his brothers come, the text tells us that when he saw them, he was so overwhelmed with emotion, he sent everyone out of the room because he couldn't even speak. Now, the reality of sin and suffering is incredible. But don't be the kind of Christian who thinks the Bible and God doesn't know what you've experienced. God does. He has seen the suffering of every person who has ever lived. Suffering that far exceeds what we will see. Some suffering that we can scarcely imagine. And David in this situation, though the text again doesn't explicitly talk about what's going on in his heart, shows us the clues that he is in a situation of emotional hurt and betrayal. Look at verse 15. We already know that Saul was after David. But the verse says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. It's telling us that, that there's a reality that David is seeing. That, that what once seemed like such a, a perfect path towards the kingship has now become the worst thing he could imagine. He's in the wilderness. Okay? He's, living, he, he's, he's living in caves and on the ground. This man whom he respects and he loves hates him and wants to murder him. He saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness as if at Jeresh. Again, literally and figuratively, he's off by himself. It's very matter-of-fact, but it communicates a lot. David looks at his life, and, and it is not the place that any of us would want it to be. Living in the desert, being chased like a pest, fearing for his life. He had to take his family and hide them in another nation out of fear for their lives if we were to put it in our modern lingo, the way that we like to talk, make no mistake that David knew what it meant to be burnt out. He knew what it meant to have anxiety, to be depressed, to have trauma in his life, and yet he sought the Lord and he obeyed him, but but still, he felt attacked and alone and weak. And this text tells us that, because Jonathan comes to strengthen him. Now, why would he feel so weak Well, we already explained it's a tough situation, but there's even more here. Okay, we're not an ancient Israel, so we don't understand uh, as much the kind of lives that they would live. But here's what you need to know, okay? The Ziphites, now when you read the Bible and you read like a blank it, all it means is people from that place. So there's a city called Ziph, the people who live in that city are the Ziphites, okay? They're not like a different ethnicity or something. They're Israelites just like David, and in fact, they're in the same tribe as him. They're his countrymen, they're in Judah, the, Judean, Ju, the Ziphites are people from Judah, not too far from Bethlehem. Now, we know that David is in the wilderness of Ziph in these verses. Which means, if you're reading closely, that he's not in the city. The wilderness is the area outside of the city. So, so David, who is kind of cast out of Saul's um, castle or a palace. He's cast out of that home that he used to have. He, he's out here in the wilderness. He's not in a city. The Ziphites didn't open up their home to him. They don't have a place for him to stay. He's been kicked to the curb by his own countrymen. He's a fugitive in his own backyard. I think if we allow the human aspect of this story to hit home, we'll see that David probably feels more alone and more rejected and more abandoned than ever before. I think for so many of us, when we think about our trials and our suffering, this is how we feel. Attacked on all sides. Stuck and alone. I remember a few times in life, um, more than a few times, when things got tough, that that feeling of aloneness was, was kind of the strongest emotion I could characterize. that I could identify. That nobody knew what I was going through. I think it's a natural way for us to think We don't know the inner workings of other people's hearts and minds, so we feel isolated in our suffering. I've seen it as a pastor in those who are hurt, who come to us for counsel. I don't really want to talk with anybody. Even you, pastor, I don't want to talk with you today. I don't want to hear from anybody. Nobody understands. I'm guessing that you can relate to that feeling. And that's partly why the question of whether God really cares hits home for us. We feel alone, we feel isolated, and even from God. And if so, then we need to see that in this passage, God ministers to David. He cares for him, not now through revealing his plan, but by sending to David one of God's people. Read verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Heresh, and strengthened his hand in God. See, David's own kinsmen, the people of Judah, the Ziphites, have turned their backs on him. But David is not alone in the world. There are other people of God still, and one of them, ironically, is the son of his greatest enemy. It's Jonathan. We talked about Jonathan in chapter 20 a lot already. We know his character, his commitment to God's will, to God's kingdom, his sacrifices, his integrity. He is a man who loves. He's a blessing from God in his steadfast trustworthiness. And this man, Jonathan, is the one God sends to show David he cares. In David's loneliness, in his wilderness, the text says that Jonathan goes to David at Harresh and strengthens his hand in God. Now what does it mean to strengthen someone's hand? Okay. It seems maybe straightforward to you. Maybe you don't know exactly what that means. Well, I like the way the NIV translates it here. The NIV says Jonathan helped him find strength in the Lord. He helped him find strength in God. He encouraged him in the Lord. Now when you normally think about strengthening someone's hand, it's kind of talking about like fortifying a position. It's talking about giving someone maybe like um, reinforcements in a battle. That's the normal usage of strengthening his hand. But that's not what happens here, right? You guys read the story. You look at it. What actually happens? Jonathan shows up by himself. He doesn't show up with some like arms to give him. He doesn't show up with like some weapons he's going to loan David. He doesn't show up with an army at his back. He doesn't show up with really anything. He doesn't even stay for super long. It's just Jonathan by himself because he strengthens his hand in God. Well, how did he do that in verses 17 and 18? He did it in two ways. First, by reminding him of God's word that he will be the next king, that he is the anointed, that he will rule one day, that even Saul who hates him knows this because Samuel made it clear to all of them. So he points David to faith in God's word instead of fear in the circumstances. And then secondly, he helps David find strength in God by being a faithful, committed friend. Verse 18 says he made a covenant with David again before the Lord. Jonathan keeps on making covenants with David which are promises of good. He says, I'm with you. Even if I can't be with you here in the wilderness the whole time, I'm with you in my father's palace. I'm for you, I'm on your side. He commits himself to David again in the midst of his hardship. And and the words and the presence of this man of God, they bring care into David's distress. See, God has a plan in the midst of your suffering, and even when you feel lonely or isolated, God has people whom he will use to care for you, to bring you the truth, to be committed to your good, to strengthen you in the Lord if you will fellowship with them. We need people like this. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, when people are in a time of discouragement, as a pastor, what I see is um, they, they kind of pull away. They have a tendency to pull away from people in their life. And that's understandable and it's natural, and I understand why you feel that way. But at the same time, we need to understand that God cares for his people through his people. In your distress, he wants to minister to you by those who will strengthen you in the Lord through their words and through their presence. Verses 19 through 23, they go into greater detail about how the people of Ziph betray David to Saul. It, it's a contrast that they're like conniving and scheming, like just uh, just come on out and we'll, we'll set him up and we'll deliver him over to your hands, It's what they tell Saul. There's this great contrast between Jonathan and David's countrymen. See, what the text shows us is that what David needs is not just people who look like him. What he needs is God's man, Jonathan. And the same is true of us. That when you're in that season of suffering or or that trial, or maybe you just have this long-standing difficulty, you don't need like other uh, Californians to talk about it with, other Texans, other people in the exact same stage of life who know exactly what it's like to have three kids at those exact ages who are in those exact genders. You don't need all that. It's good. It's great if you have it. But if you're going to experience God's care in the midst of your trial, the Bible says is you need fellowship with God's people. Sometimes we talk about preparing for trials before they come as as being part of wisdom. And part of that preparation is building the Christ-centered, committed relationships with people in the local church before the trial comes. So that you can fellowship with these brothers and sisters, be encouraged and ministered to by them. We need friends who will strengthen us in the Lord when we are weak. If you don't know that now, then then, then believe it and start to build those relationships. I want to speak on this just briefly because at Zoe we have been growing a little bit and I'm sure you've noticed it. We have new people, we have visitors often and uh, we're glad and we're happy that you're here if you are visiting with us or you're newer. We're, We're so thankful to be able to preach the word of God and minister to you. But I should let you know as a pastor that That we believe in the God-ordained means of the people of God caring for one another. We believe that as a church, we're not meant to be a church for people who only want to attend but never want to actually love and care for the other people sitting in these pews. We're not interested in in being a church where we create a product and you just consume it from online in, in your home or something like that when it's convenient when you feel like it. We believe that because of the Bible, we are to be a church of people who care, actually care for one another, that serve one another. And of course, that means we know one another. People who strengthen each other and our faith in relationship. Now, that doesn't mean you have to know everyone, but you ought to be caring for someone. If you're part of Zoe, if you consider Zoe your home, you ought to be caring for someone, serving someone, encouraging someone, being committed to someone. Not just someone in your own immediate family, but someone here in the family of God. So seek it out for yourself. And just practically speaking, one way that you can do that uh, that I think is kind of goes under the radar, a lot of times people in church, they, they think, you know, if I'm with the pastor or I see the pastor's family, I want to do something nice for them. It's really nice as a pastor. People want to bless me. Just take that thought and, and look the other way, and do it to someone in the church. And we'll start to build in our church this kind of environment where we're people who care for one another in our needs. So seek to be that, and then seek it out in your own times of distress. Understand that one of the best ways we can experience God's care is to fellowship with God's people. And this leads us to the last and third way we see God's care in this passage. Like David, we can experience God's care when we trust God's providence. This is in verses 24 through 29. Trust God's providence. Let's read it together. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. That's the Ziphites. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. We experience God's care when we trust in God's providence. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of providence? Have you ever heard that word before in church? Divine providence. It's an old-fashioned word. Well, let me give you a definition of what Christians have meant when they've talked about providence. Divine providence means that God is in complete control of all things and that he directs them according to his wise and perfect will. So God is in control of everything. And yet the Bible also teaches that God is completely wise and good. God is so far above us that nothing that happens is outside of his control. He is 100% in charge. And yet at the same time, what he does allow, what he directs, is done according to his goodness. How do we know this? Because the Bible says he is creator and sustainer. That Jesus Christ upholds the universe each and every moment. The Bible says also that he is good. God is the standard of goodness. Everything he does If you need a kind of a a refresher on these, I encourage you to listen to our sermon series about the nature of God, um, where we kind of talk about those things more. But divine providence means that God directs all things according to his good and perfect will. It can be one of the most difficult doctrines to accept, especially when things go wrong. Because that's when it's hard. That's why you ask the questions, does God even care? Because you think God is supposed to be all powerful and all loving and all good. And yet, in my life, this thing which is terrible has happened. But when you understand God's providence, it ultimately is one of the most comforting doctrines for those who believe in the Lord and place their faith in him. If you understand providence, you will begin to see that it is the proof of God's care for you even when life is tough and even when you start to question that there are signs and there are things that you will begin to see that show you that God is a good and sovereign God. And these last verses of the story, they give us a glimpse of that in David's life. They show us how this happened for David and his men. Look again at verse 24. They arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul, and David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of man. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of man. So it's kind of like this chessboard. Okay, I just found out that Dwayne is really into chess. I didn't know that. Um, but I've tried to get into chess, I'm terrible. But, anyways, imagine a chessboard where. There's this king that's alone at the end of the game, and all these pieces are kind of closing in on him. That's the, the image here in this story. David keeps on having to leave one city and go to the next, one wilderness to the next. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. His wilderness is shrinking by the moment. Saul is closing in. It's like a spiral. And the scene zooms in to this one rock formation in verse 26. And we can almost see it like a movie. Saul went on one side of the mountain. And David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. What The text is showing us is that the jaws are closing in. He and his men, they can see like the dust of Saul's army on the horizon. And all of Saul's evil plans for David are coming to fruition. But then we see God's providence. God isn't gone. He hasn't abandoned David. This is still his story. Just as they're about to catch up, verse 27, a messenger shows up and says, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And Saul, even though he wants to catch David, he wants to kill him, he he has to turn back because this is his job as a king. If he's not going to fight the Philistines, then his army is not going to fight for him. So he sees the tracks of David in the sand, as it were, but in a twist of fate, really a twist of God's hand, he's turned away. He's frustrated, not by Jonathan, not by David, not by the Ziphites, but by God who is providentially orchestrating all things. And so the scene ends, David receives God's care a third time. Not from the response to him seeking God's plan, and not from the fellowship of God's people, but this time in a bigger way. In a wider, in a safer, in an all-encompassing way. God receives, I mean David receives God's care through his divine providence. His sovereignty to do what is wise and good what he has planned for the good of those who trust in him. There's a proverb that says, the heart of a man plans his way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. So in verse 28, when it says, therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape, what the author is doing, he's explaining to us why the men of Judah memorialized that particular rock. Because in that circumstance, in that coincidence where the messenger showed up, And David got away and Saul had to turn back. In that one moment, they recognized that what happened was God. And not them. What happened was God protecting the future king. And the future nation. And ultimately the future Messiah. And so if we look at this story and and we try to understand the lessons, we'll realize that if the showing up of a random messenger at just the right time is enough for them to memorialize this rock to God's providence, then perhaps the situations in your life, the circumstances in your life where God has done good to you and you've seen it so clearly, they're worthy of being memorialized just as much. But those are your rocks of escape, so to speak. That you might recognize God's care in the providential moments that you have seen and experienced. So this is, it's interesting, I think. Um, it's kind of like the, have you guys heard of the bell curve? <laughs> you probably, if you talk to Jesse, you have. Jesse's always talking about the bell curve. The bell curve is, uh, it's like this, right? A bell curve. And basically what it is, is this idea that a lot of times what we think in the beginning of something changes, right? We start to have these other thoughts. But at the end, when we've learned a lot, when we become more wise, we see that some, some of the things we thought in the beginning were actually true. That we kind of go full circle in different areas of life. And it's kind of like that in the Christian walk. When you're a kid, you know, I, I talk with my kids about God. And, and, and we were out in our backyard and we had just gotten a new fence, which is taller than the old fence. And I was like um, telling my son, I was like, you know, this fence is cool because nobody can see in and, and see what we do. And he's like, you're right, no one can see in, but God can see us. And I was like, you're right. And I didn't even think of that because right? he's a kid and he just thinks about the presence of God and the reality of God all the time. That God is just doing these things in his life. He's always saying, you know, God can do that. You know, God did this. He always sees things in light of God. Now, I don't know what that means about his heart. I hope it's something good. But when I grew up, I didn't think that way. You now all of a sudden, it was just all me. I was doing all this stuff in life. I was going to college. I was making these decisions, making bad decisions sometimes, dealing with all the fallouts of what I had done. Not about God at all, right? Studying these things, building this life, doing all the dreams that I have. And yet, it seems that to be a mature believer, you start to be childlike again in your faith you start to see that actually, that was all God. Actually, it is all God. Actually, that that one moment when that guy uh, stopped me to ask about my spiritual life, even though I wasn't expecting it, that was God's providence. That one time I listened to the radio, I turned it on, and the preacher was talking about the danger of having an affair, and I had to check my heart about whether my mind was wandering. That was God's providence. That two minutes when I turned the radio on, that it is always God. That if you're a Christian... Not only is it always God, but it's always for your good. See, why are you here this morning in church? To hear that God cares for you in your suffering. It's God's providence. How did you first meet that person who told you about Jesus? It's God's providence. How did you have that experience in life that made you give up faith in yourself finally after living for yourself for years and decades? Again, God's wise, good providence every moment in your life that has been for your good to let you understand your need for God and how you can come to him through Jesus, all those are signs, they're examples, they're memorials of God's good providence. And that includes the high times and the low times. It includes the victories and the defeats. And so in the difficulty right now, we need to know that God didn't all of a sudden lose control, step off the throne, change his mind, The Bible says God is always sovereign, and he is always good. And I imagine that some of you here don't believe it. You're like, I I just, you're just preaching that Christianese. That's fine, I can't convince you. But maybe some of you here are starting to see it. That God has been infinitely good to you. So that you might praise and worship him. See, Even when you're hurt, God invites us to trust his providence and respond to it. And as a Christian, as someone who, who understands the gospel, believes it, has had a relationship with God given to you by grace through faith, when you find yourself in the situation where you wonder whether God cares, you ought to remember his providence. He has worked wisely for your good. In Christ, in history, in your life in particular, and in your heart. At just the right time, the Bible says, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for sins. At just the right time, you understood your sinful state. At just the right time, you turned to Christ in forgiveness, and God didn't all of a sudden get bad at timing. So when we struggle with knowing if God cares, sometimes what we need most is to remind ourselves from God's word about his providence. If you read the stories of believers who suffered far greater than most of us will ever suffer in history, it's amazing because so many of these believers talk about their, their deepest sufferings, their hardest trials in light of God's divine providence. They, they see in the darkness things that most of us are blind to see because they're the eyes of faith. They know what the scripture says. They know that God is sovereign. David was such a believer. And the author of Samuel wants us, invites us to be this way as well. It's a perspective. God shows his care for David in his providence. God is always in control. He invites us to see it and respond to it and worship him for it. If you are a Christian, if you love God and place your faith in Jesus, Romans 8 reminds us that if you are called by his divine purposes, the God who controls all things is actually invested in your good. That's an incredible, incredible life-changing fact. So I don't know what storm you might be going through, or what storm might come into your life. But I know that from the scriptures, the providence of God is a big enough umbrella to cover you through it and to carry you. As Charles Spurgeon once famously declared, even when you cannot trace God's hand, you must learn to trust God's heart. So this morning, like David, or this afternoon, like David in the wilderness, the place for us to end is where we started. Does God really care? That's the question. In your loneliness, maybe in your failure, maybe in your sadness, maybe in your trauma, maybe in your workplace, however big or however small, does God really care? The story of 1 Samuel 23 answers the question for us with an unequivocal yes. That even in times of loneliness and suffering and questioning, we are invited by God to have the eyes of faith to experience his care for ourselves. When we seek after God's plan, and we follow it when we fellowship with God's people and we're strengthened by them, when we trust God's providence and we learn to to look even more for it and worship God for it. May the story of David in the wilderness lead us as a church this afternoon to put our faith and hope in the God who cares. We're going to pray right now together. And as we end in prayer, I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord and cast your cares on him because he cares. Why don't you bow with me? Father God, we come before you this afternoon, and I have no idea where everyone in this room is at, whether they're newcomers or, or visiting for the first time or only time or um, whatever the case is. or been here with us for a long time and are members of the church. We, we know, God, that each person who is here, you know and you see and you know what's going on. I imagine that there are situations that they are struggling through right now. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, give them the confidence to know that you are a God who cares, that you are a God who hears, that you are a God who wants us to turn to you. And so first, if there is a situation in your life where you are wondering whether God cares, would you bring that to him now? Just bring that to him. Just just confess that to him. Pray that to him. Be explicit. Be honest. Your Father knows what you need, but he loves to hear from you. And you turn to him in trust and dependence. So just bring that before the Lord right now for just a minute or two. I want you to pray for God to reveal his plan to you as you seek his word in whatever situation you are in. Just pray that that you would seek after his plan to follow it and to obey it, to know what he is doing in your suffering, not to be consumed with what, what you want him to do in it. pray for God to reveal his plan to you through his word. next I invite you to pray for God to encourage you through the fellowship of his people either to to bring fellowship into your life to strengthen you or to show you how you might be used by God to strengthen others in the family of God finally, if if you struggle in this way, ask God for the faith to see that He is sovereign and He is good. For those of you who believe that, pray with thankfulness. Praise the Lord right now for His providence. History, that you know all things and, and you see all things and you are reigning over all things and yet you care for us. And yet you see our lives and, and, and not only do you, do you reign over it, you, you involve yourself with us. You sent your son into this world to die so that we might have a relationship with you. That in the things we walk through in life, whether they are trials and sufferings or, or victories and joys, we can know we have a God who cares and Lord we thank you for that truth we thank you that as Christians we can proclaim it not just to the world but to ourselves I pray Lord that you would grant us by your grace and by your spirit even this afternoon the blessings of your care in Jesus name we pray